Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of John, chapter two. We'll read uh, from verse one through verse 11. John, chapter two, the word of our God. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim and he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let us pray. It is my privilege tonight to introduce to you and to welcome to our pulpit a man who many of you already know and who doesn't need an introduction. And so, Pastor Walter Chantry, thank you for coming and come open God's word to us. I'm going to ask you to open to Matthew chapter 11 as we look at the subject of the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 10, we read that our Lord Jesus Christ sent his 12 apostles away from him uh, to send them throughout Israel instructing them not to preach to the Samaritans or to any Gentiles, but to preach his gospel to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as he as he was dismissing them, he empowered them to work miracles in the support of the messages that they are taking To the lost sheep of Israel. Then in chapter 11. When the twelve had gone. And Jesus himself was alone. Probably near Capernaum. Which was the headquarters. Of his. Public ministry. There were two of the disciples of John the Baptist. Who came to Jesus. They were sent by John. To ask him a question that John had. And the question arose, we see in Matthew 11 and verse 2, from what John had heard of the power works, the miracles of our Lord Jesus Christ. He knew the kind of things that Jesus was dealing in casting out demons, in healing the sick, and in feeding those who were hungry, 
these reports had gotten back to John. But the question was in verse three, are you the coming one or do we look for another? This was a question that was troubling John's heart. I do not believe that John had thought less of Jesus than he had before. You remember that when Jesus first went to John, when Jesus was 30 years of age to be baptized by John, before Jesus had performed any miracle, he was predicting that a greater than himself would come. And I think John still held that opinion of the Lord Jesus. In Matthew 3, 11 and 12, John said to those who were present when Jesus came to him, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will thoroughly clean the threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John, it seems, had an Old Testament view of Jesus, an Old Testament view that did not properly divide time. He simply looked forward to one coming of the Lord, the Savior from heaven. And he expected two kinds of miracles from him. There would be miracles of mercy, which would be shown to the true grain that he gathered into the barn of God. But there would be miracles of wrath as well that would be visited upon the chaff. And that chaff would be thrown into the burning furnace. He certainly was hearing of Jesus' wonder works that were done. He knew that these miracles of mercy were taking place. But he heard nothing of the supernatural wrath of God visited upon those who had no faith in God his Father. And John was perplexed. He knew that that too was in the prophecy of the Old Testament. And so he asks in these terms of Psalm 118, 26 or Psalm 40, verse 7, Are you the one who was to come? Or are we looking for someone else? Well, our Lord Jesus Christ told the disciples of John to go back to him and to report once more. Tell John... The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor, by which he meant the meek, have the gospel preached to them. And these terms our Lord Jesus is taking out of the prophet Isaiah. And then Jesus adds in verse 6 of Matthew 11, blessed is he who is not, you could say, trapped, or you could say, smitten, 
It, it's referring to um, a crooked stick that a hunter would place in tension so that any animal that stepped in the trap would be killed. And uh, blessed is he, I think Jesus is saying, who does not have his faith destroyed because of me. So this question set the stage for Jesus' address in Matthew chapter 11 to the city of Capernaum, where he had been living and ministering, and to the cities round about, as we read him talking to Chorazin and Bethsaida, in addition to um, the city of Capernaum. And he begins his address to them by saying, what did you travel out in the desert to see when you went to find John the Baptist and to be baptized by him? Why did you go this distance into the desert to see him? Were you looking for a reed swaying in the wind? That is a man of shallow convictions who was moved by every gust of opinion, a man who was yielding to popular trends of the day? No, at the moment John the Baptist was in prison because he would not budge on the issue of righteousness and he would not budge on the issue of truth. He withstood him, the, the uh, Herod. And he was imprisoned by Herod consequently. Well, what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Of course, they saw some of the Pharisees walking around in soft garments who always bowed to the influential around them, showed deference to the wealthy and those in positions of authority, and as a result received soft and elaborate garments from them. Is that what you went out to see? No. If John was known for anything, it was for wearing a hair shirt and having a diet of eating locusts and wild honey. No, he was no such soft man at all. Well, what did you go out to see? A prophet? And Jesus says, aha, I've hit on it this time. You did go out to see a prophet. And more than a prophet. He was sent to call the nation to repentance. And then Jesus gives his assessment of John in verse 11 of chapter 11. Assuredly, I say unto you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Then the surprising remark, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And uh, our Lord Jesus Christ was establishing the kingdom of heaven through his public ministry. He was setting it up. He was laying the foundations. People were being called into the kingdom of heaven by his preaching. And from the least to the greatest who enter the kingdom of heaven, they will be greater than John the Baptist in this. Here is poor John in prison, 
and he doesn't understand all of the prophecies about Christ. He has not lived to see the Messiah who came crucified on a Roman cross, tortured for the sins of those who believe in him. Nor did they hear of him rising from the dead, nor did they hear of him ascending into heaven or sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And the least in the kingdom of heaven will have the privilege of knowing these truths. And it is the fullness of revelation that will make them greater than he. Of course, we read of John the Baptist and admire him. And we think surely we are not greater than he in many, many ways. But in this magnificent knowledge that's been given to us. That Christ died for the sins of his people. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He sat at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And we know he is coming again. John did not have this space between his first coming and his second coming. He expected to see the miracles of mercy and the miracles of wrath at the same time. But we have the burning of the chaff at the end of time when Christ comes again. And that puts it in perspective. And in that way, we understand what John did not. Well, our Lord Jesus Christ goes on in Matthew 11 and verses 16 to 19 to rebuke the people who are listening to him preach because he likens them to petulant children who are not satisfied with anything that is set before them. They are like children in the marketplace and someone comes along and says, let's play wedding. We'll play a flute and the rest of us will dance and they don't want to do it. And someone else comes along and says, all right, let's play funeral and we'll mourn and we'll walk along the street uh, in sadness. But they don't like that idea either. And Christ is likening these two situations as God bringing John the Baptist to preach repentance and sorrow for sins, but the people would none of it. And they called him an oddity and insulted him. And our Lord Jesus Christ invited the people to the joy of the gospel. And they, re they refused him as well and accused him of things that are unseemly. Well, Jesus began then to rebuke the cities who had not been receptive to John and had not been receptive to him when God's prophets had come and preached to them. And in verses, uh, verse 20, he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his power works had been done. And what does he say to the city where most of his miracles were done. Woe unto you, Capernaum. Woe unto you, Bethsaida. Woe unto you, villages 
and towns where most of these powerful works of supernatural things were done in your presence. Because they had not repented of their sins. The miracles were given as supernatural acts of Almighty God, supernatural acts of the Father through Christ, super acts, supernatural acts of Christ himself, in order to assist sinners to believe. At the end of Mark 16 in verse, in verse 19, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and his disciples went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through accompanying signs. The miracles, the signs, the wonders, the powerful things that Christ and his disciples did were confirming the word that was brought. Of course, one of the difficulties Christ had in his lifetime is that when people saw the miracles, they benefited from the miracles and they wanted more of the benefits. Uh, one of the dreadful ones was when he fed the 5,000 and uh, had to tell them that you were delighted because your stomachs were filled, but not because you heard anything about the kingdom of God or because you had a hunger for the things of the Father in heaven. And so often the miracles fell in that direction as well. But they were given to confirm the word. Another great text to that end, Acts 2.22, when Peter is preaching, he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst. And then, of course, you'll remember the great verse in Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. How shall we escape? If we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, God bearing witness, both with signs and wonders. And then the scripture that was read this evening in John 2 and verse 11, the first miracle of Jesus turning water into wine at Cana in Galilee. This beginning of the signs Jesus did and manifested his glory. The manifestation of the glory of Christ in the miracles. And his disciples believed in him on that occasion. They believed, they saw the glory, and they came to faith in the master that they were following at Cana of Galilee. So the miracles were used along with the word and the spirit to impart faith. And in Matthew 11 and verse 20, Jesus begins to speak to Capernaum about the miracles. And he says, 
if the mighty works done entire if the mighty works done to you were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have remained to this day. Tyre and Sidon were the two cities uh, along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea that were utterly destroyed at the end of Old Testament times. And Jesus said they would have continued to this day if they had seen these signs. And of course, Divine omniscience knows that. It's not something we could have figured out who would have repented if they had seen these signs. But Jesus knew. And so he tells them the day of judgment, which is yet future, will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Because they had such great advantages, such great Affirmation from the Father. Such displays of the divine majesty in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, they did not repent. Then he says that Capernaum will be brought down to hell. If the mighty works in you had been done in Sodom, in Sodom, It would be an inhabited city today, says Jesus. Again, omniscience knew that. You and I would not be able to say that. But it will be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And what of us when we read of all the multitude of his mighty works, we have Remarkable descriptions of the miracles of Christ, historic descriptions of 30 to 40 of his miracles, which we can ponder and meditate on and react to. However, we must not think that all men would believe if only they saw these miracles. In Luke 16, Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus the beggar. And in the story, the rich, the beggar died first and he was carried into fellowship with Abraham in heaven. And the rich man died and was buried. And in hell, he lifted up his eyes in torment. And so a conversation begins between the rich man and Abraham to send this beggar to relieve his suffering. And Abraham says there is a great gulf fixed and no man ever travels from heaven to hell or from hell to heaven. It's a gulf that is fixed. So then the rich man pleads, please send the beggar back to our hometown. I have five brothers, and if they see him raised from the dead, they will never come to the place where I am. And the answer to him is they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the man in hell still didn't believe in the scripture. He said, no, Father Abraham, no, that's not how it would work. 
If someone would rise from the dead, they would believe in him. And he was told if they do not believe the scriptures, they will not believe if someone is raised from the dead. All this longing in our age for more miracles. If they will not hear the word of almighty God. Miracles will make no difference. In Matthew eleven twenty five to 27. Our Lord Jesus Christ turns to prayer. He stops pronouncing curses upon the cities that saw his miracles and did not believe. And he began to speak to the father. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. That you have hidden these things. From the wise and the prudent. From the elegant. From those who are so wise in their own eyes with their degrees and their scholarship. Thank you for hiding these things. Who is it that is so opposed to miracles in the Bible? It is the learned, is it not? It is the scholars in the universities. And those who want to be like them. I thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things from them. They do not understand them. They do not see them. They will not see them. You have hidden it from them. And I also thank you that you have revealed them to little children. Except a man become as a little child. Believing. He will not enter the kingdom of God. And so it is in the face of miracles as well. And we know that even with a miracle and even with the clearest of light from heaven, something else must come to a man if he is going to see the light. There must be sight given to him to receive the light. And you remember, do you not, in 1 Corinthians, uh, that we are told how God made light shine out of darkness. And yet, men remain in darkness until the God who said, let there be light at creation, says to each man, let the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shine upon you. And it takes that command from God to make even the miraculous and the word of God effective. And so I want you to turn, if you have been following in Scripture, turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where we want to talk a bit uh, about the whole matter of miracles farther. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. 
ignorant. There is ignorance. There is gross ignorance on the subject today. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols however you were led. When you Corinthians used to worship at idol temples, you felt impulses. You felt drawn in the direction of these things. You were moved. You were led. If you've ever been in a charismatic meeting, they say, now close your eyes, sway back and forth. And when you feel the impulses, give in to them. The apostle is saying, no, no. That's how it was in the temples where demons were present. And demons have real influences. And you felt all that you felt in some of your charismatic meetings when you were worshiping in idol temples. And so he says in verse 3, to test the spirits. And the test is not by feeling. The test is not by excitement. The test is not by what you do. The test is doctrinal. What is this spirit saying about the Lord Jesus Christ? Test the spirits. And uh, as he goes on, he points out that all men do not have the same gifts. There are many different gifts in the church. And uh, in verse 31 of chapter 12, it says, earnestly desire the best gifts. Well, what are the best gifts? Chapter 13, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. And then he goes on to describe love in this place. And the reason that he gives why love is the best gift of all why is it the best? Verse 8, love never fails. But whether there be prophecies, they will fail. And whether there be tongues, they will cease. And whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. All these other things are going to be gone. There is an end point to them. And charismatic meetings will not continue in the church moved by the Holy Spirit. They will end 
But love will not end. And hope will not end. But they are going to vanish away, says he in verse 8. Well, when are they going to vanish away? Verse 10 in chapter 13. When that which is perfect, complete, a word that can mean not necessarily perfect in that sense, no flaw to it, but when it is complete, um, when that which is complete has come, then that which is in part will be done away. And when does the complete come? Listen as I read to you Second Timothy chapter three, verses fourteen to seventeen. But you must continue in all things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make a man wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. Could have been written. Translated perfect, thoroughly equipped to every good work, thoroughly equipped by the Scriptures to every good work. The New Testament has clearly said that when the last apostle dies, who has been commissioned to write Scripture, John, about 100 A.D., And the scripture is complete. And it is perfect. It has all that a man needs. Then that which is in part will be done away. It will cease. It will pass away. I emphasize these things because, again, brethren, you know, uh, some of us years ago, were very bad prophets in terms of knowing the future history in seeing the resurgence of Calvinism, the resurgence of the Reformed faith, the resurgence of the Puritan way of reading Scripture. We thought great things are coming. And you know the movement has been hijacked. And those who are most believed that say we are reformed. They are not. They are not. And I don't mean to say there is nothing to them. But they have told the world we are the new reformed. We are the new Calvinists. Of course, the first question should be what was so wrong with the old Calvinists? If you're saying we're the new Calvinists, you're saying there's something different about us than the old Calvinists. Let's list that for us, will you? And I say it with sorrow that some of those men 
who are drawing tens of thousands of youth in the name of Reformed have about them this, that they say they are open to the whole charismatic movement. That they even wish that they could experience those things. And recently one of them had someone in the pulpit who preached that if you do not have healings and speaking of tongues, what is this? Revealed messages from heaven. In your worship services, you are not an adequate minister of God. And they call themselves reformed. Again, sometimes uh, we do have to grieve, and I grieve over the hijacking of these things. Listen, listen to the opening statement of our confession of faith. Opening statement. The Holy Scripture is the only, only, sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And the end of that paragraph reads, Therefore, it pleased the Lord to commit the same holy unto writing, which maketh the holy scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. The Confession of the Reformed Church. The Confession of the 1600s. The Confession that we share today. No, you cannot be open to the charismatic gifts and be reformed. The very foundation of the Confession is being undermined by that kind of thing. And we simply cannot go along with these men who, if whatever they talk about, they think makes them reformed. If they have undercut the very foundation. I want to talk just for a few moments about one other aspect, one other problem that we face. Practical problem with regard to. The uh, miracles of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and I know. That. It is very difficult to speak to many people about miracles. They think that these are myths. Um, because the universities and scholars utterly reject the idea of miracles. Largely because they are entirely materialists. With a philosophy. That. Has a presupposition. That natural order is eternal, has always existed, is self-correcting, and a constant from which, which we build all our conclusions. Material things have been made self-consistent and eternal. 
And that is their philosophy. And it has excluded God, the creator. And therefore, of course, uh, liberalism came along, you know, and looked at America and the West and said, the West doesn't believe in miracles anymore. The West doesn't believe in the supernatural anymore. But that was only the beginning for the liberals. The next thought was, we will save Christianity by preaching a Jesus without the miracles, without the supernatural. We will call him the most loving, wonderful teacher who ever lived. And we'll cut out all the miracles. And when the young people come through Sunday school classes and they are having trouble believing that miracles like this could take place, we'll say, you don't have to believe those things, those stories. They are just stories to the learned. Whose eyes God has blinded. It's not just that they made a mistake. Their eyes are blinded by God. From scientists to novelists in the academic realm. And we have never lived in an age that is more antagonistic to the supernatural and miracles than ours. And it is a difficult subject to address. But it cannot be sidestepped as the liberals did. And, you know, to some degree, the liberal estimate was right. We can take over the by eliminating the teachings that people have problems with. And that's still the strategy of people today. And do you know, I'm sure you do know, that vast amounts of Baptists have said, as a matter of principle, no, we will not preach on a Sabbath day. Americans don't believe in a Sabbath day anymore. How are you going to get people into your churches when they love baseball and basketball and football and Sunday is when it's all happening? We're not going to preach the Sabbath as a commandment from God. And what other what other topic from the scriptures do we find that our people would not follow or be glad to hear. And there are groups throughout the nation who are trying to build churches in just that way. Let's eliminate any teaching, calling attention to things in the scripture that people don't believe today so that they can come into our church and they don't have to change their ways and they don't have to change their views. And we will build bigger churches than those who keep teaching the Bible. And that is the strategy of many. Well, it explains liberalism, but I say it also explains many who want to be called reformed. And they don't want all that the Bible said. 
Jesus must be taught and preached with miracles. There is no way to avoid miracles and talk about the true Jesus of the Bible. Jesus is connected with all of the greatest miracles that ever happened. And if you take the miracles away, there is no Jesus left. He is the eternal, infinite spirit who became a true man. That's inconceivable miracle. He died on a Roman cross, but he rose from the dead by his own power after three days. That is an inconceivable miracle. He went to the realm of heaven and sat at the right hand of God and his Lord of the nations. And when you turn on the TV set and look at the news, he is in control of what's happening in the nations. Whether that's pleasant to us or whether it is not pleasant to us. He does have the whole world in his hands and he is taking it to the conclusion of history that he had planned before the world was ever made. And upon that, we should find solace and comfort. But my main point is you cannot preach Jesus without these miracles. And they are the most profound of the miracles. Take them away. And it's not the Jesus of the Bible. We all know that instinctively, but we need to remind ourselves of these things. And that's how things are going today. Either people want to reproduce the miracles of the New Testament era of which we are assured they have ended. Or. They want nothing to do with talking about miracle because it is unfashionable and they might be laughed at. Or just because they have sense that people are ready for a religion that is free of all miracle in its teaching. Our God is a great God. And the one hope that we have in the world that we're living in is that he will arise with his mighty power. And deliver us and our children and our civilization at the same time that he brings the final judgment, which is certain to come. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for having performed so many miracles. We thank you for your supernatural power, even in making the world. We thank you for the stunning work that you do in forming new human beings within the womb of a woman and bringing them to birth. We thank you for the great miracles of the scriptures. And we even thank you for the miracles which are yet to appear at Christ's coming. We pray that you will make your word to be mighty in our day and grant that we may be used little as our gifts are to turn the beliefs of people in the direction of your word. 
But that is just the kind of thing that you do. Making believers out of little children. While the elderly and the distinguished cannot see these things. Begin to awaken the infants around us. And begin to use the simplicity of preaching your truth. To shake the people that hear our poor voices. But do bring glory to yourself. And send that Holy Spirit that Jesus promised to come. Send it in greater measure for our age. And in the pulpits that are represented here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.